Man, all right, I'm back. Uh, I don't remember if I said my name. I think I did, but my name's Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town, and uh, it really is good to see you guys. I'm excited for today. We are in uh, the book of Ephesians, New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. We're in week six of this letter, uh, looking at um, all kinds of stuff. If you are new here, if you're just, uh, if this is your first time here, bathrooms, you would think, would be back that way. They're actually through here. Uh, feel free, don't worry, no one's watching, no one cares. Um, if you go to get up. I don't know, sometimes I like, feel like people are self-conscious to go walk that way, don't worry about it. Um, all right, week six, um, and uh, just recapping last week real quick, uh, the, the Apostle Paul has, has said, now you Ephesian believers, you came, you were included in Christ when you believed the gospel, this message about Jesus, his salvation. Um, and now, now the Apostle Paul is overflowing. He's praying for them. And he prays, uh, starting in verse 18 here of chapter one, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in, this, in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And we had fun looking at this passage last week. Pastor Brian led us through kind of looking at, at praying and how to pray and, and how uh, what it looks like that the Apostle Paul prays in this way as actually a form of Jesus praying on our behalf. And um, so we see that, but Paul can't help in this prayer to turn to praise. And we were laughing about that uh, in verse 19, he's praying and he wants them to know this. And then he says, and I want you to know his incomparably, incomparably great power and then he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, that he can't help but interrupt his own prayer with, with the rejoicing in what God has done, raising Christ, showing his power, putting Christ in the place above all rule and authority. And this power at work in the resurrection of Jesus is gonna be a foreshadow for us in our upcoming passage, and, and we're gonna spend time in three weeks going over chapter two, verses one through 10, and, and seeing what this link in our union with Christ and his resurrection through power is gonna be similar to us being raised. There's gonna be a dramatic before and after. And I was thinking about before and afters, and this show came to mind. If you are like me, you've definitely at random Saturdays just binge watched a ton of Fixer Upper. If you're not familiar with the show, they kind of take a family, uh, people that are interested in getting a new house and they, they give them a budget and then uh, they take that family around to kind of three houses and then they have to pick a house and then this is Chip and Joanna Gaines. They will come in with their team and, and kind of fix that house up and make it uh, the house, the dream home for the family. And, uh, and so we get in that, in that show though, you, and it's kind of fun because you're like watching, you're like, I think they should pick the third house. Those other two, I don't know about. The third house though, I could see that has potential. And then they pick the third house. And you're like, I told you, I was right. Um, anyway, so Fixer Upper though has got these dramatic before and afters, right? This house that was uh, in need of repair. And then all of a sudden we see it at the end. They do the big reveal. Wow, I can't believe this this dramatic change that this house has seen. And we're, we're bombarded actually when we stop and think about it with dramatic before and after uh, images, videos, et cetera, whether it's, um, I was thinking like makeup tutorials even, right? Or uh, um, 
body transformations, people that undergo big uh, weight loss transformations and different things like that, that we are always seeing these before and afters in the physical space, physical before and afters, a house, someone's health, uh, whatever it might be. But we don't often think about spiritual before and afters. And that's really where we're going with today's passage as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the titles Before and After Jesus. And so other, other titles we could have done is uh, the gospel of past tense or um, the bad news before the good, something along those lines. Um, but we have to look at, and we're going to look at the bad news. Actually, uh, this is an old navigators thing. I did not grow up or, uh, uh, well, I, did, I wasn't a believer in college. Um, and so I wasn't in a campus ministry. That would have been weird uh, if I was <laughs> anyway. Um, so I wasn't in a campus ministry. This is an old NAVS thing though, as a navigators campus ministry. Uh, we got some NAVS in here um, to communicate uh, kind of spirit, coming to spiritual life or, or what the gospel is. And so it's called Two Cliffs, A Bridge and a Prayer. On the left side is the first cliff. That, and that's where our passage is gonna be that we're dead in sin. We're separated from God by, by this cliff. And, and, uh, and then there's this bridge. God is actually gonna create the bridge. He's gonna send his son so that even though we've been dead in sin, we can come to faith in Christ. Uh, we, can, we can actually have a relationship, come alive to God because he's built the bridge. And, and so typically then that's the bridge. And then the prayer is kind of like, okay, I need this savior. So I pray the prayer of faith. And I put this up here uh, because it's just a way to present the gospel, but it's also uh, our passage today is just the bad cliff. I'm only on the bad cliff and yet I couldn't kind of help. And we'll see how the apostle Paul could not help kind of getting to the bridge and getting to the good news. And so I will also be getting to the good news, but we've got to start with the bad here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature children, or we were by nature deserving of wrath. The ESV says children of wrath. Okay, our problems are clear. We've got some serious before Jesus problems here. We were dead in sin. We were blindly disobedient. We deserved wrath. So we are inwardly and outwardly opposed to God. Inwardly, and in that we're dead in sin, we're incapable. Outwardly, that we live in this world, as we'll see, that's opposed to God, and, and what that means theologically, or you know, as how, how the Bible interprets the word the world in different ways. And then we're following the devil, it sounds like, and then we deserve wrath. Paul's reminding these believers who have already believed the gospel here's who you were before Jesus. And so we go to our passage again, we see we were dead in sin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And that's, we do love, if there's good news in any of these three verses, it is you were dead, you used to live in these ways. This is the gospel of past tense, that we can change, we can be transformed. So we're dead in transgressions and sins. Transgressions just kind of means um, there's boundaries set up and I step outside those boundaries. God put boundaries in place for what is good and right and just and beautiful. And because I'm dead in sin, I step outside those boundaries and do things that aren't beautiful, do things that aren't good and right and just. And then sins is kind of similar. 
uh, but it's missing the mark. The idea is missing the mark that God has put forth his beauty, his righteousness, who he is in his character, and we miss the mark. We do not hit the bullseye on that. And so we're, the Apostle Paul says we're living in these to the point that we could use the term for this, that we were spiritually dead. That we have total separation and alienation from God, that nothing we do can connect us to God, that we are, if anything, his enemies. John Stott in a commentary says this, before we look in detail at this devastating description of the human condition apart from God, we need to be clear that it is a description of everybody. Paul is not giving us some portrait of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society or even the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man, fallen human beings in fallen society everywhere. So everyone, Stad is saying, if we look at this passage, everyone is diagnosed as being in sin, as being fallen, as being spiritually dead, as being apart from God. But that gives us, there's a little tension there because I see a lot of people doing a lot of good things in the world. I don't, how do I make sense of all this? And for that, we go to what theologians call the doctrine of the Imago Dei. And we get that from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says this. God's in the context, God is creating human beings. And he says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of this in the sea and over the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image and the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. And so we get this picture of God making humanity. Actually, in the, in the storyline of the Bible, this is the pinnacle of his creation. He's done, he spoke light into being. He's done all these different things creating, but now it's human beings and he wants to make human beings in his image, that there's something about them that will reflect his likeness. And so he creates us in his image that we're beautifully made by God to reflect his beauty, his goodness. We're meant to be like our creator, God. There's something beautiful about every human being you look in the face of. And it is that, they're made in the image of God. That's the doctrine of the Imago Dei. But we also see something else. What happens two chapters later in Genesis is sin enters the world. Adam and Eve sin and they're tempted and, and lied to by the devil and they choose sin. And, and now Romans in the New Testament, the apostle Paul is gonna tell us, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in that way, death came to all people because all sinned. And that's the tension. Made beautiful, sins come into the world. So now there's a tension there that people are made in the image of God. They can reflect and do good things, but they're also tainted. Everything they do is tainted and impacted by sin that all have sinned, all are corrupted. We've inherited this problem which is actually important when we come to reading our Bible. If you grew up going to Sunday school, uh, this is what uh, sometimes is called the good-bad binary. And that's a misread on the Bible that we can make. When we go back in the Bible, we read about biblical characters and we put them into good categories and bad categories. This one's a common one, right? King Saul, he's bad, right? We all, King Saul was bad in the Old Testament, but King David, he's good, right? And that's the kind of good-bad binary. And what that means is that we're putting people into those categories that some are good and some are bad. And that's the wrong way to read it. Pretty intense graphic design here. They should have never gave me Canva. That's what happens. Anyway, that's the wrong way to read it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, don't read the story that way. 
don't read as if you're good and, and someone else is bad. Don't read as if you're bad and someone else is good in those categories. People are complex, but all are sinful. Ephesians 2 is telling us to think otherwise is moralism. I'm good for my good behavior. They're bad for that, but be good, uh, for that bad behavior. If anything, what Ephesians 2 is telling us, 1 through 3, is that we're all in the bad category. There's something about us that's wrong. And actually, we see this elsewhere, right? This is Tony Stark, the Iron Man movies. And it's actually on the one image, he looks kind of more selfish and more like, I'm all about me. And the other image, he's a team player, right? But we get this in this movie, for example, just one good example of something in pop culture that gets this, right? That, well, it gets it right and wrong. In one sense, it gets it right. Tony Stark is, is the hero. He's the hero. And yet he's complex. He's inherently flawed. He has things and obstacles to overcome. Which we see, right? We are flawed. There's something wrong with us. But what it gets wrong, what, what, what this movie can't quite get right, is the fix. In any of these movies, the fix might be, he's got to be less selfish. His, his better angels, to use that phrase, have to win out. Uh, he's got he's to overcome some sort of obstacle. He's got to examine himself and kind of figure out what his problem is and then look to himself for the strength to overcome it. He's got to be a better team player. He's got to rely on others better. But what we see is that works don't work to get to God. If we're spiritually dead, works don't work. And the world doesn't work. There's something more we need. We need a greater fix. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this about Christ. He says, Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is showing us that we are spiritually dead. And, that, and then Dane Orland here is reminding us, Christ came to deal with that greatest problem to deal with our spiritual death. And so we start to see these before and afters even because of it. First Corinthians, and we're just for reference, we're gonna be in Apostle Paul's other letters. A big term for that is called integration, bringing in other scriptures to help us understand our passage. And the Apostle Paul, who better to write in other letters about his own letter? Uh, so First Corinthians, another letter that he wrote says this, or do you not know, he's talking to the Corinthian church, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What that is called is a vice list. He's throwing out a blanket list of sins so that I can't look at that list of sins and say, not me. I don't deal with that. So I must be okay. He's saying people that live like this, people that are consistent and persistently rejecting God will not inherit the kingdom of God to the point that he says, no wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God. But we just saw in Ephesians 2, we're all wrongdoers. So we can't look at it as good, bad. But let's get a little bit of before and after. Let's get a little before and after. He continues, he says, and that is what some of you were. In verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is one of our great spiritual before and afters in the New Testament. 
You were whatever one of these, you were one of them. You were a sinner. You were dead in sin, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus, declared righteous. And by the spirit of God, you went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. That's one before and after. But the second thing we saw was we were blindly disobedient. We kind of see two foes here, as it were, two uh, outside influences, as it were, for us. Two more problems. One, it says here again in this Ephesians 2, verse 2, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So again, in the past tense for us, we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air who is a spirit at work in those who are disobedient. And so we get this lot, we're lost in the world and we're under the sway of the devil. This description here is just the devil. And so we've got to talk about how we are blindly following. In the past sense, blindly following this world and blindly following the devil who was actually at work in us. That word there, at work, is the same as the word described of God working to raise Jesus from the dead. It's pretty harrowing. And Paul's actually going to use this idea of, of spirit, ruler of the kingdom of the air, spirit who's now at work, powers and principalities, cosmic forces over this present evil. He uses a lot of cosmic evil language here in the book of Ephesians instead of namely calling out the devil very often because he's reminding us we have a supernatural enemy. So we're lost in the world and we have this supernatural enemy who's the devil who's also at work against us. And so what does that look like then? First, let's see how the New Testament describes the world. In 1 John, the apostle John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So in this category, the world is described in many ways throughout the Bible, created good, created beautiful, fallen. But here, the apostle John sets the world up as almost this theological category or this relating to God category opposed to God and what he's about. We see it in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. So he says, don't love those things that are opposed to God. So the world is portrayed as something to be resisted in this sense, something to not fall prey to, something that we were a part of where we did love the world. We did love its desires. And secondly, another, this is Apostle Paul again, 2 Corinthians 4 gets at this, more of this idea of this age, this era and the devil. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In verse four, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So there's this idea of the gospel being veiled that people that are not believing the gospel are actually, Paul says, spiritually blinded, that they can't see kind of what, what it would be like to be dead in sin, that we can't see 
the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. We can't see the glory of Jesus Christ. And here's now how the devil's at work in this age. Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible in Mark chapter four is a parable of the sower where the gospel is shared. And one of the things the devil wants to do is, is blind people from hearing it, blind people from responding, blind people from giving themselves to Jesus through faith. So he takes that gospel message away. He takes away the vision of Jesus in his glory. He's veiling the gospel. He's blinding minds. But that's not the end of this verse or this passage. Because the gospel goes forward through proclamation. And it says, the God who said and spoke light into being, in Genesis chapter 1, when he was creating all things, makes the light of the gospel shine in our hearts as we come to know Jesus. And so we have to be careful when we think about these two opponents, the world and the devil. First of all, um, has anyone, this is Monopoly put up on the board. <laughs> has anyone ever finished a game of Monopoly? Really? Oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. Anyway, congrats, I'm proud of you. I um, was thinking about what game I was gonna throw out there as a question, like what game did you play most growing up? I was thinking we played Sorry, if you guys remember Sorry. Either, okay, so we either watched, I was thinking when I was a kid, we either watched The Lion King or played Sorry in my memory every single night that I was a child. I don't know what else we did. I think that was it. I was thinking like, mom and my dad would come home from work and, uh, and be like, what do you guys wanna do? Watch Lion King for the 490th time? Okay, all right, we'll watch Thermont Lion King on. But we have a sidebar, but we have to be aware of having a little bit of board game theology. That, that well, a couple things, right, with this. When we think about the world, we have to be aware, we're on the, the board game of the world, but we have to be aware of getting swept up into it. We have to be aware of starting to live a life where I only look out for number one, where I only matter to me, where I'm playing to win no matter what, or if I just got to try harder, I just got to make it in life. I got to, maybe what I'll do is I'll keep the rules better than anyone else. I'll know the rules, I'll keep the rules better. Or maybe I just have to be inherently better. I just have to be better than people. I start to compare myself to them. Maybe I'm better, maybe I'm worse than them. We fall into that board game theology. We think of life as a board game to win. We get caught up in it, looking out for number one, forgetting God, forgetting what he's done in the world, what he's doing in the world. Or this is me, when we play cribbage, I'm always like, this is the second one. When we play cribbage, I'm like, ah, oh, I just didn't get the cards. And I am almost attributing to fate or some other power that that's why I lost. And we could think about the devil that way. We could think, oh man, he's, he's got a lot more sway and a lot more control than he actually has. Or maybe we just think if I just catch that one break, if I just get one break, if things stop being centered against me, powers beyond my control are at work and I just need something to go my way. And where we fall, when we get that wrong in board game theology is that there actually, there is a power at work, but it's God. God's behind everything. So first with the world and how we think about the world, we see the world as this mass opposed to God, people opposed to God. And yet John 3 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We don't need to be afraid of the world. If anything, what John 3 is telling us is God saw the world, this mass opposed to him and said, I'm entering in, I'm saving, I'm redeeming. That's what his work is to do. That the world actually has a before and after and it's before is not knowing God and after is salvation. 
that God loved the world in all its mess, filled with sinners who were looking out for number one and said, I'm gonna send my son to save them. So we don't wanna get swept up in the world, but man, we wanna be in the world sharing the gospel and loving people like God does. And secondly, we don't need to be afraid of the devil because God's in control. God is the only person who ultimately accomplishes all his purposes. It might feel like the devil's in control at times, but it's just not true. Colossians 1, another letter from Paul says this, and I had to include a couple of verses too, just because it's so relevant to our passage. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When we see this, in, in one of the ways to think about the devil in the Bible is that he's always on a leash, but all the more after what Christ has done on his cross. Christ put the devil, and here described as powers and authorities, so the devil and his demons, to open shame. On the cross, the moment when the devil thought, I've got the victory, Jesus is actually sealing his defeat. The devil's on a leash. His victory is over our sin. His victory is also over cosmic forces of evil, including the devil. That the devil's a defeated foe. The before and after for the devil is losing and full condemnation. So in Christ, God changes the game to another board. And lastly, then we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And we get that hard word there, by nature deserving of wrath. And that wrath word is intense. It, I, this quote helped me this week. John Stott again says this. God's wrath is not like man's or human beings, right? Our wrath. It is not bad temper so that he may fly off the handle at any moment. It is neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. He continues, it is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. I've enjoyed this description of God's wrath because it shows me that God's wrath is even something to be worshiped. When we look around at our world, we see a lot of evil. When we look in our hearts, we see evil. And we see God is hostile to evil because he's beautiful and good and righteous. And he wants to deal with it. And he does deal with it because he is good. So when we look at Ephesians 2 verse 3 and we see this, we have to see that's who we were. All of us, that the ground is level. We were people who were spiritually dead under the sway of the devil, totally opposed to God, disobedient, living to gratify the cravings of our flesh. That just means our sinful nature, following its desires, following its thoughts, thinking about only the things that I want for me that would be rewarding to me. People who were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the bad people and the good people. That's all of us. 
God's wrath is bad news for these kind of people. In fact, in Titus, another letter from the Apostle Paul, he says this, to remind us that nobody escapes this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In in this letter, he's writing about the good people in the world. This is how he describes the best of the best. Living in malice, envy, hating people. You know, if you ever want to know if you have malice, here's how you know. When you're driving in a snowstorm and you're driving on the highway and you're in the right lane and you're going slow, you're playing it safe. And someone comes flying by you in a truck, you secretly want to see them in the ditch further ahead. Oh, you got what you deserved. In the hearts. That's evil. We are so opposed to, to God, so opposed to each other. Deserving of wrath, the Bible says. But here's the good news. There's two types of people in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Those who were dead in sin and those who are dead in sin. And we've got to figure out who are we? Used to follow the ways of the world, still follow the ways of the world. You used to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You no longer follow the devil and he's not at work in you or you still follow him. You were dead in transgressions and sins, but now you're alive to God. You were, you're still dead. You're now considered fully obedient and righteous in the risen Christ or you're still disobedient, alienated from God. Your wrath has been removed in Christ, poured out on Christ, or no, you're still deserving of wrath. There's two kinds of people. We've got bad news, but Paul can't even stop there. He doesn't stop there. Titus verse four, but when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, how did it appear? As a person, Jesus, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done that we figured out the board game, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The past tense is a matter of life and death here. Are we in verse four and on? Have we experienced this rebirth, this renewal? And that's why Ephesians 2 is so important. And to go back to the fixer-upper analogy, there's no sense in fixing up a home that has crumbling foundations and rotted wood. We need rebirth. We need renewal. We need something from outside of ourselves. We need divine intervention. And the word we use for that is grace. When all we deserved was wrath, instead we get grace, kindness and love, appearing in Christ, new spiritual life, the very thing we needed. Dane Ortland again, he says this in Gentle and Lowly, the mercy of God reaches down and rinses clean not only obviously bad people, but fraudulently good people, both of whom stand in need of resurrection. Ephesians 2 is showing us there's no good, bad binary if we're all dead in sin. We need a savior who in mercy can give new life And that's the one that we get. Ephesians 2 doesn't stop at verse 3. Verse 4 and 5 say this, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace you've been saved. What does God think of dead people? Who better to save? Who better to redeem? Who better to make alive? That's the power of the gospel. John chapter five, Jesus says this to the gospel. In verse 24, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Only the gospel has the power to crack open caskets. The Son of God has life in himself. Who are these dead people in verse 25 that will hear the voice of the Son of God and live? They're those who hear the gospel and respond. What is this gospel? What is this love? First John 4 says that this is love. Not that we love God, again, we were spiritually dead, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He ends our spiritual death. He ends our alienation by taking it upon himself. The truly spiritually alive one died a physical death so that spiritually dead people like you and me can be made alive. He took the wrath of the cross. He took our alienation. He took the debt we owe and he paid it on the cross. So after Jesus, those who were dead in sin have died. Those who were blindly disobedient have been set free by the truly obedient one. Those who deserve wrath get grace, mercy, and righteousness. We've been set free from sin inward, from the power of supernatural forces outward, from opposition to God. Our alienation, our condemnation is over because of Jesus. And that's a before and after to behold. I want to close with just some, some Hope Lower Town folks shared with me this week, some different people shared with me a little bit of their before and after story with Jesus. I'm just going to read a few of these uh, and make a couple comments as we move toward closing here. One person says this, before Jesus, life was shallow and fleeting. I chased empty worldly promises that didn't have true depth and led me in frustrating circles. After Jesus, life is anything but shallow. It is full of his abundant love. His love is the light that shines through my life and it is through that love I find purpose and true joy. Another says this, before Jesus, I was struggling through life, trying to find life and meaning and purpose in all kinds of things like relationships, job status, and more. Those things left me more and more hopeless because they never seemed to satisfy. I was ready to give up. However, after coming to faith in Jesus, I'm now hopeful despite my changing circumstances because I have come to find what I was always looking for and what truly satisfies in Jesus who loves me and accepts me on the basis of his finished work. Another person says, before knowing and actively following Jesus, I would try all I could to gain his acceptance. And when I inevitably failed to work my way to him, I felt despair and unworthy of a perfect and holy God. When I started to actively follow Jesus, his spirit opened my eyes to see that I didn't have to work my way to him and that he had already worked his way to me. That made me hopeful in spite of the times I fail or when I feel that I'm not good enough. 
I am loved regardless of what I do for Jesus. And finally, one more says, before coming to faith, I had this deep aching longing to be known, loved, and approved of and considered worthy. I knew that so much of the things we seek after in this world were meaningless, but I had no guide or anchor for truth or life or meaning. But after coming to know the truth of the gospel, that longing was replaced with deep and profound joy in Christ and the conviction that he holds me in love through all things, the very good, the very bad, and everything in between. Some may not feel, some in here may not feel, I don't know if I have that direct before and after this dramatic change. That could be a couple of reasons. One, maybe you came to faith when you were young. And you just have always known Jesus. That's a good thing. We don't all need to have these crazy dramatic testimonies. But who would you have been without him? You ever think about that? If God didn't intervene and save you? Maybe you've never really understood the gospel before. Maybe you've thought you did have to work your way to him. Maybe you're thinking that now. And maybe that's why you don't have this dramatic before and after because you're not there yet. Today could be the day. And you see, it's by grace we're saved. That God is in the business of making dead people alive. The gospel is I'm accepted, therefore I do. I don't have to earn to get God. He's done it on my behalf. I just have to believe. Or maybe you're struggling with this, and this is a quote from, oh, we lost the slide. Did we lose the slide? Oh, yeah. So then my question for you is, (laughs) are you in on this? Are you in on this? Have you heard this message? Have you believed this gospel that Jesus has come and died for your sins and risen that you might have life in him? Have you said, I trust you today, Jesus? We actually have a, uh, Brian mentioned chick tracks last week, a gospel tract, and then Jeremiah found this outside. Uh, It's wild um, and I don't agree with it, but uh, it does say this was your life. Today could be the day for you where you say that was my life. And on this day, sorry, December, February 20th of 2022, I accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, and my life has not been the same ever since. For me, it was in March of 2015. This was right, right before that, though, because this is maybe where you're at. In 2015, right before I came to faith in Christ, I was driving in a car with Allison, and it was after a sermon, and I remember listening to the message, and then I, I hit the steering wheel, and I said, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. And it's funny. It's, I laugh about it now because this was my final protest. This was the last gasp I had of, of worldliness. or I'm still worldly in some ways. I'm a sinner, right? But, I, but this was the last gasp I had before I put my faith in Christ. My last shred that I was holding on to was my own righteousness, I had to still believe that I was a good person. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, the good person came. There was one good person. It wasn't you, but he came and died for you. So today could be the day where you stop protesting God and trust in his son for salvation. And then secondly, if you have done that, just enjoy your new life. I don't have, this is gospel response. He's done it. Let's enjoy it. Let's live in it. Let's live as people saved by grace who have a past tense and now have a future in Jesus. Let me pray. We're going to move to a time of communion. I'm going to pray. Um, here at, at Lower Town, we, 
we uh, practice what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. Um, the communion here on the, on the left and the right. <laughs> anyway, uh, what we ask is that you'd be a follower of Jesus. As we take this communion, it's helpful to remember his, the bread, uh, the cracker symbolizing his body broken for us, the juice symbolizing his blood shed for us. As we take this, we can remember that he has done it. That the communion is actually a remembrance. It is a past tense thing, that he's done it. And now we have new life in him. And then uh, I'm gonna pray, invite the worship team up, and then we will continue worshiping through song. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for this good news, even that emerges out of the bad news, this gospel of past tense, that when we were dead in sin, the story could have ended there. You could have left us. But by your grace, you didn't leave us. You moved toward, you sent your son, you reconciled, you paid the cost in Jesus of our death and our debt, the wrath we deserve so that we can have new life, that we can have an after, a hope, a future and full righteousness, full acceptance in your son, simply through faith. So I pray you'd move in our hearts to respond to that. Help us to enjoy that new life today. We pray that you would move mightily in our, in our songs and in our hearts this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.